Welcome back, everyone, to the Vitalist Spark podcast. Today, we're excited to share some exciting news about a long-standing project that we've been working on with tribal partners across Arizona. By now, most of this audience is likely familiar with the elements of a healthy community, the wheel as it's come to be known. It was developed in 2017 in collaboration with many community partners to depict the breadth of factors that ultimately impact health and well-being. Since then, the Healthy Communities Wheel has served as a framework for much of Vitalist's work and has taken on a life of its own across other organizations, coalitions, and even within local governments. It is, however, a framework, and frameworks are often imperfect tools that can and should be adapted as needed. So, in 2019 and in 2020, and in partnership with the Arizona Intertribal Council of Arizona, the Arizona Advisory Council on Indian Healthcare, and the Arizona Department of Health Services, we embarked on a series of meetings with the tribes of Arizona to develop the elements of a healthy tribal community. These discussions produced an incredible amount of insights and wisdom into tribal perspectives on community health and ultimately manifested in the creation of a healthy tribal communities wheel. Today's podcast features the key partners who made this work possible. If you're a visual person, you can find the image of the tribal wheel linked in the show notes or on vitalisthealth.org. Now, let's dive in and learn more about the elements of a healthy tribal community. We are here today with three amazing guests from the state of Arizona. We have Alita Montiel, Director of Health and Human Services for the Intertribal Council of Arizona. Kim Russell, Executive Director for the Arizona Advisory Council on Indian Healthcare, and Michael Allison, recently retired, but previously the Native American liaison for the Arizona Department of Health Services. So um, I wanted just to start off with general introductions. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself and the organizations that you represent. Alita, do you want to kick us off? Sure. And in my language, in the Yaqui language, in Alida Montiel, just to let you know, I've introduced myself in my traditional language, the Yaqui language, the OME Yaqui language. I'm at the Intertribal Council of Arizona. I've been there since 1990, and I'm very fortunate to work with the tribes in Arizona. I also have projects with tribes in Nevada and Utah primarily on health and human services, policy formation, budget advocacy, regulation advocacy to benefit the tribal nations. I also staff cultural resources, which is a working group of the Intertribal Council of Arizona. And I work with cultural resource managers and directors, also libraries in the tribal communities that are working on cultural resource issues and advocacy. So that's my role at Intertribal Council of Arizona. I'm currently the chair of the Arizona Advisory Council on Indian Healthcare. And I'm also a longtime member of the Arizona Behavioral Health Planning Council, which is a federal statutory council that advises the state of Arizona on various issues beyond just Medicaid on behavioral health. Kim Russell, would you like to take a moment to introduce yourself? Thanks, Marcus. My name is Kim Russell, and I'm with the Arizona Valley Council on Indian Healthcare. Very 
happy to be here today. I'm of the Bitterwater people, born for the Tangle people. My maternal grandfathers are of the Coyote Pass people, and my paternal grandfathers are of the Bitterwater people. I'm originally from Chinle, Arizona, but I reside here in, in Mesa, Arizona, and work here. I work for, of course, the state of Arizona. Like Alita was saying, we are a part of the Arizona Advisory Council on Indian Healthcare. I'm the, the director. I've been a part of this agency for about seven years now. I really enjoy what I do. I work real closely with the tribes in our state, really to affect policy change, both at a legislative level and then at an administrative level. When people ask me, what do you do? My easiest response is I'm, I'm an advocate. I talk a lot. So that's what I do. I really enjoy the work that we do at the Advisory Council on Needing Healthcare. And of course, Alita has been the chair for the Advisory Council. And like she said, we tag team on a lot of different policy initiatives that we work on. And of course, Michael was a former council member to the Advisory Council, and his input has been really valuable. Of course, we know he's enjoying retirement, but we hope he might consider working with us in the future. So again, glad to be here, Marcus. So the man who's been retired for just over 30 days is already being reined back in. Michael, take a moment to introduce yourself to everybody, please. Well, thank you, Marcus. And thank you, Alita. Thank you, Kim. And thank you to uh, Vitalist for sponsoring the podcast. Like Alita and Kim, I'd like to uh, introduce myself in Navajo. So, uh, I see not on in as that nasha, they what out nationally. Usually, in all kinds of communications and audience, there are Navajo people out there. And so it is customary to say our clan so audience will know how we may be related. Just like Kim, we share a common grandparents in terms of her maternal grandfather is my Dashkijna, and my maternal grandfather is also. My As we get into podcasts, this is where we start to differ with healthcare in general, is that Indian people have their language, and it's very important, relationships, and so therein starts the, the differences. I have 46 years of work experience in economic development, small business development, healthcare, and 21 years with Arizona Department of Health Services. Just been very, very fortunate to have work with Arizona Department of Health Services, the Intertribal Council, the Advisory Council, all the tribal nations, the urban programs, and the Indian Health Service, and uh, the three universities, and within state government. So it's, it was my honor to, to be working with all these colleagues. I'm still happy to be affiliated with well, it sounds like you will continue to be affiliated with everybody for quite a while because they're not letting you go anywhere, it sounds like. Michael, you already kind of alluded to the first thing that I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, when we think about tribal health and tribal community health in Arizona and beyond Arizona, really, like, what are the things that our audience should know about in terms of how tribes understand health, broadly speaking? First of all, we are the indigenous people of these lands. That's number one. And we have treaties with the United States government. So we're the only people within the exterior boundaries of the United States that have treaties with the United States government. So it's a huge difference from any other population, because when you start working with tribes, you start working with governments. 
And there, therein lies the real difference. And then many laws that are in place. And right now, tribal consultation uh, is a policy of the federal government. And tribal consultation in Arizona and New Mexico is state law. So therein lies differences. The list could go on and on and on in terms of just further down, we're probably going to be discussing. We still have medicine people that are very much part of our healthcare delivery system. Our basic belief system is be holistic, environment, mind, body, and spirit, and that all these work together. And that we as Native people, we can get sick in two ways. We can get sick in our own traditional way, and we can get sick in non-Indian. And if we're sick in the Indian way, the only way we're going to get well is go back to our home communities and have ceremonies performed upon us to make us healthy. So again, this is a broad subject and we can go on and on and on, but basically that's uh, what I would say in general. Alita and Kim, when you think about tribal health and community health within tribes, what are the distinguishing factors that you think our audience needs to recognize? Well, most of all, I would say that when you are initiating programs, when you're initiating funding sources, when you are initiating policies, I would say to the audience and to our colleagues out there at the tribes that one thing that for me stands out is that it's not a one-time deal. It's not even a three-year deal or a five-year deal. You're talking about digging in and being there for the long haul. And of course, our tribal nations, our tribal governments, our programs and services, we're always endeavoring to stand them up and to improve them over time because we know that we've had situations where a health issue, we try to band-aid the problem. The federal government or the state government tries to put a band-aid on the problem. And that is not going to resolve the issue such as Michael Allison spoke about, because it could be either a health issue that's related to your indigeneity, to your indigenous perspectives, to your balance with all of nature, your balance with the creation. It could also do with new diseases and new issues that came upon our communities later on, such as diabetes. So I would say the difference is we really look to resolutions that are for the long haul. We highly value those partners that dig in with us for the long haul. Kim, same question to you. When you think about tribal community health, you're in a lot of these discussions with people who likely want to dive in. And like Alita said, you know, sometimes think that there's a quick fix or that this is a one-off transactional relationship. How do you address those conversations? What are the things that you try to set as a, you know, level setting with people before diving into tribal health? You know, in the work I do, we work with a lot of non-Native partners, and, and they're important to, to the work that we do. I think some of them, especially the, the ones that are fairly new to working with tribal communities or fairly new to working within the state, 
think there's a learning curve that they have in terms of how quickly they can be a part of the community and, you know, deliver the the goals of maybe a grant that they had or whatever their target is. And I think they quickly realize that it's not going to be in and out, like, like Lita was saying. Working with some of our partners, whether it's within big organizations, hospital systems or government systems or, or university systems, we let them know that, you know, it's going to take a while. Well, you know, we'll start some discussions and we got to figure out who wants to come to the discussion in the first place. And I think a large part of the work that I do is I kind of vet some of the people to figure out where is their level of knowledge and experience of working with, with tribal people, because it, it gives me an idea how to work with them moving forward. Alita just mentioned it, it takes time. A lot of the policies that we put in place, a lot of the funding that we put in place is kind of, you know, here's a grant for three years and do what you can. But for us, probably just within three years, you finally have maybe a level of respect with, with the community. So it's it's a long term. I think you're hearing from Alita and Michael that to work with tribal population, I think any population that is either a vulnerable population or they've had historical mistreatings with different institutions, it's going to take a few years to gain their trust and to really just understand the community. But it's well worth the investment. What I've realized in the career that I have, but I also wanted to point out, at least maybe on a family level, maybe on a community level, I think it's important to to realize that a lot of our Indian families are multi-generational. And I think that's also true for, for other minority communities is that they're multi-generational. Whether it's because it's a cultural practice, I think a lot of the time it's because of economic situations or maybe some other social determinants of health that kind of require families to live together. And I know we're going to get into that discussion a little bit here, but I wanted to mention that our communities are, our, our people are multi-generational. So it's not unknown of to see siblings living together or grandparents living with the grandchildren or in households. And I think that really speaks to a lot of how we do our interventions and the policies that we make. But I wanted to also shine a little bit of light of how it looks on a family level, but also on a, a, on a community level. We're very um, communal. And I think that, especially with COVID, for some, it was a risk factor because we're very communal. But at the same time, if we are able to leverage it in a good way, it can be a protective factor. Let's dive into that. Let's dive into like, you know, the social determinants of health, how tribal communities view social determinants of health. SDOH, social determinants of health is kind of, I'll say it, it's, it's a buzz term. It, it is used to be all inclusive of things that ultimately impact health that are inclusive of, but beyond traditional medical care. So Kim, you mentioned community as being a real determining factor for health and well-being. You talked about how there's a lot of multi-generational families within tribal communities. What's similar to the non-tribal way of thinking about SDOH compared to the way that tribes have long considered what is now being termed social determinants of health? I'm going to take it a little bit different. You know, I think we all, as, as you know, individuals, as humans, we all realize and need different um, supports within our lives, you know, what we call those social determinants of health. 
whether it's education or um, economy, um, having a job, having food on the table, we all, we all need those to a certain extent. But we did a lot of work with Vitalists and Alita and I just came off of a, another presentation we did to describe the tribal wheel. And the tribal wheel is very similar, you know, to the, the Vitalist wheel. We didn't change it very much. We just kind of put a native flair on it. But one thing that I realized in, in these conversations, and this is where I'm going to be a little bit different, is that some of our communities don't have that influence or power to make decisions. And that's not really a, a part of the wheel. You know, when I, take, when I take a look at communities, you know, why are some communities doing better than others? It's because they're able to make decisions that can benefit a certain population. That's why they're able to do, to do better than others. So I think there's, there's power imbalances within our communities. And I think that's what exacerbates a lot of our social ills within our different communities. You know, we're working a lot in COVID. There's a lot of money that's coming down through Congress to impact COVID. You know, I always say this to Alita and Michael and, and my partners. And once those monies go away, and once COVID is no longer the disease of the decade or what have you, what will have been put in place to uplift the community? So I'm really happy that we're talking more about infrastructure and social determinants of health. But you know, once a year, two years down the line, we're still gonna have to, to work with our communities that might have lower graduation rates or lower wages or those other social determinants of health. So when I think about the work that we do, and it kind of goes back to, I think, how we, how we think as Indian people, we, we think holistically in terms of our health. And a lot of our health goes back to our mental health. If you're not healthy in, in mind, in heart and spirit, that really impacts everything else. And of course, that can translate into physical ailments. But I'll go ahead and, and, and stop there. And I, I really like to hear you know, uh, Michael and Alita, who, who have been my mentors for a quite while and, and how they how they take that, because I really regard them as my mentors and my elders. And, you know, again, just to how, how we view health generationally at, at different ages, I think also we have to consider. So I'm really happy that we're doing work also with our um, adolescents. Michael or Alita, any thoughts on Kim's comments? You know, she mentioned that health is communal. The first way of thinking about approach for many tribal communities is holistically. It's not just about the medical diagnosis that is, is commonplace in, in much of society today. How do, you, how do you think about the social determinants of health and how they're framed or how they impact tribal communities? But, you know, the terminology, social determinants of health, you know, when our groups came together, we had 17 tribes participate in the Healthy Tribal Community Will Development. And we reviewed the Vitalist Will, and we looked at which parts are applicable to tribal communities and then how we look at health from a wellness perspective. And... There was different terminology, you know, from a tribal perspective, we're talking about balance, we're talking about wellness, we're talking about environmental knowledge, cultural knowledge, how that all influences our health and our relationship, which leads to good health, our, our relationship with the environment, our relationship with, we said, under the four directions, 
you know, to the sun and the moon and the stars and Mother Earth. And, you know, maybe for some people that sounds maybe corny, but I would say, you know, when you live it, when you experience it, it's very real. And sometimes imbalance happens that could lead to, you know, a mental disorder, a physical disorder, some issue that you need to get resolved in terms of your nutritional balance. So it's, it's a real life day-to-day experience for many of our tribal members when, you know, you seek balance for your, your personal health, your family health, and your community health. They are all interconnected. And they have this terminology now called social determinants of health. And it, it just kind of fits in with how we had already viewed health. Yeah, I always go back to a story that my previous colleague, John Ford, would tell that when Vitalist released the Vitalist version of the Wheel of Healthy Communities in 2017, that I forget which tribal leader we were presenting to, but they said, oh, congratulations, you're thinking about circles the way that we have for centuries. <laughs> it's like, yeah. uh, touche, well, well stated. So Michael, I'm curious as to your thoughts about whether it's the language, social determinants of health, or how SDOH impacts tribal communities How do you think about that? I think like you mentioned and has been mentioned, there's like fad words that are used given the times. And then there's other words that come in replacing the old words. And I think for tribes, since we've seen it all from day one, we see the changes of the words as the government puts out. But Every tribe has its own belief system of health. What makes one healthy? I always use the term, if you really got sitting with Native people on definitions, our definitions would be so much broader than the non-Indian definition. Just like wearing rubber shoes and leather shoes. The Indian people know there's radon in the earth. And it can impact you on what type of shoes you wear. That's why indigenous clothing was always natural. What came from the earth so that um, everything would be in balance. So just in culture and culture, it was always understood that families can take care of themselves. The women have a certain responsibility in the home. The man has a certain responsibility outside the home. And that there are community responsibilities when there's community events. In Navajo, there's a word called hojon, which is beauty. And in the culture, you know, you don't say bad things about other people. You don't downgrade people. You don't downgrade your relatives, your children, your grandchildren. You're always trying to uplift them and talk about the good over the bad. Like Kim said, a lot of mental health. And so that's what I see going on now in the U.S. tribal history is that all that was taken away from the Indian people, that way of life, that way of belief system. 
trying to make us non-Indians. And so now we're bringing that back because there's things that can be said in the Indian languages that if you understand it, it really touches you in the heart and you listen as opposed to the non-Indian language. It's hard to describe like aware, aware, Navajo people use that a lot when talking to younger people. It means my child, my baby. And if you understand the language, you don't fight it because you've been taught that way as you're grown up by your elders that you listen. They're wiser than you. They're trying to teach you. So you need to listen because someday you're going to be the elder and you're going to be teaching the kids. And so I think all that broke down with the acculturation. And so, of course, the Indian tribes fought that as much as they could and, you know, all the textbooks. But Indian people have always, always understood social determinants of health. Just didn't call it that, you know, it was just part of the culture. And it's still part of the culture. For instance, our elders knew that the way of life that they lived was vanishing because of we're now the minority. In order to survive, we need education. We need to learn how to survive, but yet not lose our identity as Indian people. So for instance, in Navajo, when we're born, our mothers take our umbilical cord and they bury it where they were raised by the sheep camp. So as we go out in the world as Navajo people, when we say home, we're really referencing the reservation. And because our umbilical cord is buried on the reservation, our minds are always thinking, how can we help our local communities? How can we help our tribes? Again, this is vast differences. I mean, we're all human beings. We all have basic needs. But when you get into the definition of health in a tribal world versus a non-tribal world, there's vast, vast differences. And unfortunately for us as Native people, you know, that was all, the U.S. government did its best to do away with that in all kinds of ways. That's the way I view social determinants of health is that we are working on them. Tribal governments are working on them. Again, like has been said, it's good. At least it's coming up. And the way I look at things, there's always good and bad in everything, like diabetes. You see all the amputations. You see all the complications. You see all the dialysis centers. And our kids see that now. And now they're saying, we don't want that. You're learning from what bad happened to people. And so with COVID, same thing. With it hitting and uh, the social determinants of health, we have the lowest educational level. We have the lowest income level. Again, this is really tied to our history 
and what happened. So when we start talking about the tribal wheel, one of the points that I bring out is that we need tribal examples of our own development because we can't just always have non-Indian concepts and then we always try to adapt them. It's got to start changing. Like one Lakota man once told me, he says, it seems like we're always in a snowstorm because everything coming at us is white. So when are we as the native people going to start putting out our belief system and putting it in writing and be proud of it? Again, back to the mind. Everything starts with the mind. And that if we're proud of ourselves, we're going to do well. We're going to stay out of what we shouldn't be doing. We're going to finish high school. We're going to go on to college. And then we're going to go back to our home communities. Do away with this social determinants of health disparities. You know, Again, every one of these topics are topics of themselves. So I appreciate Kim's comments and Alita's comments. And I add my comments to that. I think, you know, Marcus, you mentioned you know, social determinants of health is a, is a buzzword right now. I really prefer, of course, you know, it's semantics, but social indicators of health. And the reason why I say that is, you know, let's just take the, this is an example I can bring, the social determinant of health of education. You know, a lot of the times we think about educational attainment by, you know, going to high school, graduating, maybe college, what have you, all the way to your PhD or get your MD. For me, the smartest person I ever knew was my grandmother. She had a second grade education. She dropped out at second grade. <laughs> but she was the smartest person I knew. You know, she knew all the prayers. She knew all the songs. She knew all the herbs. She knew which plants to use to, to, so that you can dye and make. Um, she could do her rug weaving. She knew how to uh, farm. She knew how to raise sheep. She knew all of this stuff. So to me, she she's the smartest person I'd ever known. So when we talk about social determinants of health, I think it depends on how you're looking at the wheel. And for, for us, we see, and again, just taking that educational wedge of that social determinant of health of education. You know, we see education attainment, you know, that way, the, the, the white man's way, getting your degrees, getting your diplomas, putting those initials after your name. But then there's this other way that we see value in education. And that's like knowing the language, knowing the songs, knowing like all the other examples I gave. So I wanted to just talk about how when we see the wheel, and, and it may not be in print right now, because I think that still needs to be vetted as to how much as Native people we put in print, because there's just certain things that will probably never be in print because we need to protect those and those are ours. So how we started the discussion on creating a tribal wheel, going back to another ex earlier example, and I think Michael talked about how do we start to make our own programs, but I'll give the example of how do we, I think one of our tribes is doing this, how do we build non-native systems of education so that we can grow our healthcare workforce? Could that encompass our medicine people? I don't know if that's something tribes would consider doing, but that's a healthcare workforce that's declining as well in our, in our communities is our medicine people. What if, and again, you know, this is still up for conversation, 
what if we had the authority to funnel funds into programs so that tribes could create educational programs that could then grow that traditional practitioner workforce? I don't know if that's happening right now, but that's an idea. And also wanting to, we, we are working on something similar and that's with our Medicaid program where we are striving to reimburse traditional practitioners for the services they provide. So that's a little bit outside the box, right? But we're pushing those boundaries. We just hope that those that are in power and have the authority are willing to also look outside the box and approve those types of services and funding streams. So when we, when we talk about the wheel and how it kind of came to be, and uh, you know, Suzanne at Vital, she approached Michael, myself and Alita to talk more about the wheel. I really saw it, you know, in, in my capacity as the director of advisory council in healthcare, is how can this will help us move towards change? And for my purposes within my agency, my purpose was policy change. How can we change policy? And I think everybody can use this wheel in a way to view communities and families so that change can happen. You know, when I really think about how we look at, as Indian people holistically, we look at health holistically, it really benefits us and behooves us to look at it that way because it can help us change all parts of our world so that we can benefit from it. So I'll, I'll, um, I think Michael probably has a better history of how the wheel started and um, how we became part of the work that you all started at Vitalis, of course, the work being in print. But of course, um, Michael like had mentioned, you know, this is how we've been thinking forever. We think holistically. It's just that now it's in print. Michael and Alita, how, what do you recall about the experience in getting this, this wheel, the, the elements of a healthy tribal community? How did it come to be? What were some of the discussions and how did you know who to involve to eventually come up with the version that we have today? Well, the logistics involved through the Intertribal Council of Arizona. The Intertribal Council has been around since 1952. And when it was first formed by all the tribes in Arizona, including Navajo Nation, it was because during that era was called the termination era. And that's when the U.S. Congress was looking at ending the relationship between the United States and tribal nations, which is based on the treaties, as Michael had mentioned earlier. And so that whole issue was just front and center for tribal nations. And so they found that they needed to come together to address those issues and to stand up tribes and tribal communities from many levels, health, economy, education, just a whole host, just standing up tribal nations to make their own decisions. And so it that's how, you know, when Intertribal Council of Arizona, where I work at, became involved, you know, we were reached out to our member tribes, including Navajo Nation, to participate. There was some funding that helped us do that so we could travel in 
folks from the tribes to participate. And what we sought to do, because the way that ITCA is set up is we have different working groups. We have our board of directors, which are tribal leaders, they're elected tribal leaders, but then we have all these various working groups. And we thought, well, health, you know, we knew automatically thinking about it, you know, that health is, there's holistic, you know, avenues to improve your health. And we knew traditionally those are perspectives that many of the tribes shared in common. We have some very unique differences, but we had some shared common commonalities of our traditional health perspectives. So we were able to contact the working groups to see who would be interested in attending those sessions. And then we were able to bring people together in 2019. This was uh, pre-COVID. In 2020, I think we had our final couple of meetings. And so we came up with a common will and we knew there were differences. We knew, for example, like the four direction symbols for my tribe is different from the four direction symbols of the White Mountain Apache Nation. I'm a member of the Pascua Yankee tribe. So we have those kinds of differences. So we had to come up with a, a version and description and colors of the will that the group could agree to. And our goal at the time was to develop this will in common, but then to promote individual tribes to develop their own wills based on their traditional cultural knowledge and their relationships to the environment. And that could be unique to each and every tribe. So at this point, the will is kind of a view in common, but not individually for each tribe of all the 22 tribes in Arizona. So it's a starting place for further discussions with individual tribes. Yes, it can still guide policy change. It can still remind our tribal nations and our tribal governments who serve on those tribal councils of the interrelationship between each of the issues and topics that are identified on the will. Kim had mentioned that, you know, part of the purpose, at least in her eyes, one of the ways that this wheel can be applied is for public policy change. Alida, you're saying, you know, this can also be utilized in order to share with other tribal leaders to start similar conversations about developing tailored wheels within individual tribes. We've seen some from different organizations. We've seen some from the the First Nations in Canada. We've seen some from other regions. Some individual tribes have done their own wheels. I think it's more or less a common practice, but perhaps it's being realized more in terms of how to affect policy change, how to affect program development, how to seek the resources you need to do that. And also just one of the things that we promote at Intertribal Council of Arizona is that really good involvement at your tribal community level to enhance your, your program and your services so that there's input. It's, a, it's not a top-down approach. I'm curious, throughout this process, Lita, you mentioned this has been a multi-year process in order to develop the wheel as it, as it stands right now. What are some of the lessons learned that you would want to share with our audience about engaging in work with tribal communities and, and finding opportunities within tribal community leaders, community members, 
and even with decision makers that maybe outside of tribal communities, but still make decisions that impact tribal communities. One of the things that's hard to do a lot of times is to quit working in silos. And so example, if you have your social justice elements, you have your tribal courts, you know, you have your law and order divisions, or let's say then on the other hand, you have health and human services. So how do those relate? How do they interface? How can one affect the other in terms of addressing an issue or a social concern or disparity? So there's those kinds of things. And then sometimes it's maybe hard to grasp, but how does land use design impact health? So land use design, for example, is one of the elements or factors in our will is, are you going to put a structure on top of a burial ground? What are the ramifications of that if you do that to your communities, if you disturb your ancestral burial grounds? What if you disturb a sacred place or sacred site like Michael talked about when we bury our children's umbilical cord? I was able to do that for my children my through my tradition where we would put those umbilical cords at a sacred place, even an archaeological site where, you know, we wouldn't expect them to ever be disturbed so that the person, the child will have a connection to that sacred place. So that's how they kind of all interconnect. I wanted to go back to the history, a short history of the travel wheel. As you probably know, Vitus several years ago, maybe around 2017, was making awards to communities, healthy communities. And so Suzanne asked Kim and I to help get the word out to tribes because none of the tribes were submitting applications for awards. So as we got to start talking with John and Suzanne, it became very apparent to us that the Vitalist Tribal Wheel, the Vitalist philosophy, isn't a good starting point to work with tribes, you know? Again, it's like, here comes the white man again, you know? And here's his great ideas, and like, we don't know what we're doing. They want us to be involved. That's why we really start talking to John and Suzanne saying that if you just use non-Indian terminology, you go in with the non-Indian philosophy of health, you're not even going to reach first base with the tribes because you're not even respecting the tribes. You're not even respecting the fact that they have all these programs that they're working on that are very similar but they're not necessarily calling them healthy communities. And so a lot of it was just communications. Then, of course, for me, I guess you already know from my comments earlier that I'm, uh, I get on the soap opera in terms of if you don't see things in writing about your people, we've already been brainwashed that we're second class. So it just adds to that. We have very sharp people, just like Kim was saying, even if they don't have, they have a second grade education or they never went to school. Well, they have a PhD in their culture. 
They have a PhD in how to live off the earth. They have a PhD in how to live a healthy life and how to help a community to be healthy. And so I'm a real advocate. I want to hang up something at the time I was at ADHS. I want to hang up something in my office that's developed by tribal people and that tribal people can relate to. Then we're sort of on a level starting playing field. That's some of the background as to how the tribal wheel came to be and to John's credit and Suzanne's credit. They understood and then they knew we needed a sit down meeting with tribal health directors, tribal leaders. And so we started talking about that. And then to Alita, Travis, and Maria's credit, the discussions started in terms of a contract that uh, Vilas was going to make some dollars available. Because it's one of the things that we run into in working with tribes is there's a double-edged sword with tribal sovereignty in that tribes come together, uh, work on common issues, but not across the board. This is one of those areas that isn't, yes, individually, every tribe is doing something, but not collectively. I was really happy when ITCA and Vila start talking because like everything else, you have an idea, you think it might work, but what do other people think? And then of course, I'm a firm believer in, and tribes are a firm believer in, the more input you get, the better your decision is going to be. And so those dollars allowed for those meetings to take place in 2019, 2020. And ITCA is so well respected in the community that the tribal people, tribal health directors and tribal leaders made the time to sit in those meetings. And then the advisory council on Indian healthcare having the same type of respect within the tribal communities really made it possible. Then, then it went to the contract and we are where we're at. And there's a lot more work that uh, needs to be done, but at least we got the framework as the leader was talking about and that the tribes are vastly different. We, yes, we share some commonalities, but we have very distinct languages and culture and symbolism. So each tribe would take that tribal wheel if they so choose and develop it into their own, using their own symbols, using their own wording. I'd also like to say in terms of policy, unless we put some things like this in writing, that on Indian really doesn't know where to begin. You know, what is the philosophy of the tribe? What's facing the tribes? So at least with the tribal wheel now, we have sovereignty and tribal government. So I know a lot of people, non-Indians, will not know what that means. So that opens up that conversation. Because if you're going to work with tribes, you got to understand what those words mean and how they're being implemented. Belief and spirituality. Another difference between non-Indian healthcare and Indian healthcare. You will never go to a non-Indian doctor that is going to start with a prayer because he, she thinks they have all the capability and they don't need a higher being to help them. And it's maybe taboo to bring in spirituality into the office of a doctor. But not with the medicine people. 
you'll never go to a medicine person, traditional, and they're always going to start with a prayer. They're always going to invite the higher being to guide them, to look at the patient and determine what the patient needs to get well. Again, resiliency, way of life, self-determination. Those are the outer words in the tribal wheel. And I know many, many non-Indians do not know what those words mean, but they need to, and they need to understand them. And this is where policy starts to come in. A lot of what we're talking about, too, in terms of what Alita opened up with and what Kim mentioned is it's hard to put a time frame. And when you put a time frame, you're almost killing the relationship. And this is where my hope is down the road that there's, there's a philosophical change, policy change, that when the government puts out dollars, they got to put out dollars on a long-term relationship. They can't do it one year, two years, three years. It's got to be long-term. So Indian communities are very close. Families, just like the way we introduce ourselves with our clan system, our relationship, those are very, very important. But you don't see those in the vitalist wheel. That's why we've got to have the tribal wheel. And it's got to be out there so that as people start to work with our communities, they have a basis for way of thinking and programs that are already ongoing. So I want to say that. And then as far as lessons learned, like has already been said, partnerships, partnerships. No one entity can do it on our own. We need everyone at the table. We need federal people. We need state people. We need tribal people. We need ITCA, advisory council, urban people, Indian Health Service, academic people working together so that we can all move forward on the same page as far as travel development. So, and again, lesson learned. I, I, I think what we learned was that we're starting to understand each other. Again, Vilas put the dollars out there. It's a huge, huge step. ITCA values partnership along with the advisory council, Arizona Department of Health Services. Lessons learned for me was I was so happy that nobody spoke against the tribal wheel. Everybody was in unison that, yes, this is good to do and that we need to do it and we need to move forward on it. And lessons learned to me is that if we have broad involvement, that's why the wheel is, you know, where it's at now in terms of a document, a diagram that is multi-purpose. I want to give each of you an opportunity still to think about if this were a game show, maybe this is the ask the audience question. Like, what is the one thing that you want to ask of our audience? What is the one thing that you want to make sure that our audience knows and takes away from this conversation? I just want the audience to know that when you look at the wheel and it'll probably, it'll be up on the Vitalist website, think of it as a wheel in motion. It's not static. Those circles are turning. You have the center, you have that core 
where it says elements of a healthy tribal community. For example, that is the color of copper. We tried to come up with a color that represents the fire within the earth, which is also the hearth of the home. So, and we tried to come up with a color like the soil and what we build upon, you know, the spirituality, the mental, the emotional, the physical. We tried to come up with a circle that means the family, family interacting with all of these elements, we tried to come up with community being that we're all connected to our community in a healthy family, a healthy family is related to a healthy community. One builds upon the other and you can't have one without the other. And then you had the circle of water, which we wanted to just interject that water is life, water is survival, water is our element of health. We could have represented other elements, in which they are there in the circle, like the sun and the moon and the stars and the, the rains. I just wanted to note that when you look at the wheel, if there was a way to come up with a graphic where it's turning, it would better describe how the will could be utilized. One takeaway for me, Marcus, that I'd like the audience to, to leave with is that, you know, we're all connected. I know that we're sharing information on a, on a tribal view and experiences, but we are all connected. So when you take a look at the will, yes, it may have a tribal nuance to it, but everybody is a part of these wheels. And so it takes the whole village, the whole community, neighbors, everybody, regardless of race, for us to build these healthy communities. And I think that's very achievable. Marcus, I, I, again, I just want to thank uh, Vilas. I want to thank Alita. I want to thank Kim and everyone that's been involved in the podcast and the audience, the work that's been done. Our whole purpose is to strengthen and enhance the working relationship between non-Indian partners and tribal governments. I'd really like to know, you know, um, was this helpful in terms of the presentation? Because that's the purpose of it, to make it a little easier for the non-Indian community to understand, again, the health philosophy of tribal communities. I'd like to know if, if, if this is helpful. We're in a big ongoing communication. And one of the terms that I used to use at ADHS is that you don't know what you don't know. And so there's got to be these types of educational presentations. So I'll just put it out there. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Vitalist will do podcasts on sections of the wheel. For instance, sovereignty and tribal government. You know, that's a whole area in itself you can get tribal leaders that will come in and talk about that. Then I think that would strengthen the non-Indians understanding and knowing that when they start working with tribes, this is what they've got to understand, be ready to work with it if they want to uh, partner with um, our tribal nations. Our sincere gratitude goes out to Alita, Kim, and Michael not only for sharing your experience with this podcast, but for your continued work to build bridges and develop partnerships that improve health and well-being in Arizona. Your insights enrich us with the unique perspectives and traditions that must be respected when working with Arizona's tribal communities. And you remind us that success in this work to create healthier communities 
is grounded in the reality that we are all connected. As our guests indicated, the elements of a healthy tribal community is intended to spark additional conversations within and outside of tribes to better understand health within the context of tribes and to identify collaborative opportunities to address some of the health disparities experienced by Native communities. So, when you have a chance, be sure to check out the Tribal Wheel, linked in the show notes, and let us know your thoughts. Now before closing, let's remember Michael Allison's comments about the belief that Native people can get sick in two ways. The non-Native way, which may require non-Native treatments, and the Native way, which can only be remedied by a person returning to their homeland to heal. These past two years have been extremely challenging for all of us, but as we move into the holiday season and closer to our friends and our loved ones, may we all be reminded of the healing power of home. Special thanks to our guests, Alita Montiel, Kim Russell, and Michael Allison. And a shout out to the team at Gordon C. James Public Relations and producer Rob Trigg at Star Worldwide Networks for editing and sound design. If you enjoyed this episode, you can access all of our podcasts at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast or by searching for Vitalist Spark on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Thank you.